Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 1st of November. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan, and how are you going? Oh, very well, thanks, Ian. I'm, I'm enjoying this very wet spring we're having here in southeast Australia. And welcome to our November Sky Guide. So, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for November? Okay. November is going to be a very interesting month. Previously, most of the action has been in the morning skies, but now it's been slowly moving to the evening skies. And November, we see the start of having all the bright planets in the evening sky, although you won't actually really see uh, Venus and Mercury until right up at the end. Uh, so, as always, I'm going to start with the moon. So, uh, November 1st is the first quarter moon, but this is going to be a inverted commas super first quarter moon. I'll talk about that in a moment. November the 8th is the full moon where you get a total lunar eclipse, which will be really good. November the 16th is the last quarter, and November the 23rd is a new moon. So, for those of you who are interested in the dark sky, November the 16th to November the 23rd, is times of your darkest sky, which will be really good. Now, like I said, the November the 1st is a perigee for the moon. Even though the perigee is actually on October the 30th, there's a, a, only a little break between the perigee at October the 30th and the first quarter on the 1st. So if you uh, were looking at the first quarter moon back uh, earlier in the, the year when it was uh, an apogee uh, first quarter moon, you should be able to see the, the difference. If you've been taking images, you should be able to see them uh, quite nicely. Although, uh, from my point of view, it's very likely that it will be wet and rainy on the 1st, so I'm not going to be seeing very much in the way we're we'll doing very much imaging. Apogee is on November the 14th, and Perigee is on November the 26th. Remember, Apogee is when it's furthest from the Earth, and Perigee when the Moon is closest to the Earth. 
Saturn is setting just after midnight, and our was opposition, opposition when it's closest uh, and brightest, uh, as seen from Earth on the 15th of August. Now that that was a bit of a while ago, it's still visible high above the northwestern sky when the sky is fully dark, and it's still an excellent telescopic object at the moment. Uh, best in the uh, evening when the sky becomes fully dark, up until the very early morning. At least in the in the beginning of the month, when Saturn's setting around about one o'clock, uh, later you probably won't like the image up until about midnight or, or 11 o'clock for the Saturn to be high enough above the horizon to emit well. Saturn's not doing too much in the way of coming next to interesting objects. So at the moment, at the start of the month, it's forming a line with Delta and Gamma Capricornia I, and it's very close to the uh, brightish star Iota Capricornii, making a very nice lineup. Uh, again, the uh, Delta Gamma and Iota Capricornii are brightish, but not very bright. Maybe uh, not all that exciting from suburban locations, but it will be a, a nice little asterism visited by the uh, by Saturn. Uh, and now on the first and the second, the first quarter moon, and remember that's a perigee uh, super first quarter moon, is close to Saturn. And on the second, the uh, just past first quarter moon is also close to Saturn. So that'll make a very nice uh, bracket. Of course, our friend Jupiter is very prominent in the sky. It's rising before the sky is fully dark. So by the time the sky becomes fully dark, it's very easy to see in the eastern sky climbing ever higher in the evening sky as the month goes on. It's an excellent telescopic uh, object from early evening to early morning. It's setting just before astronomical twilight, so you're probably best, if you're going to be up around uh, two or three o'clock in the morning, that's probably as good as you get for um, uh, Jupiter imaging. So it's probably from about, uh, if you want to be a really a good imager, then probably you're looking at somewhere between 10 o'clock local time to about 2 o'clock in the evening to about 2 o'clock local time in the after in the night time morning. And that would be a very good bracketing for when Jupiter's at its highest in the darkest part of the sky. It does mean that's the sum of the or some of the imaging you probably want to be uh, up uh, quite some time. On the fourth and the fifth, Jupiter is just above and just below the waxing moon. So again, it's, the moon's not particularly close, but it just looks very nice. But, uh, it'll be very obvious the moon and the next brightest object is Jupiter. Uh, and on the, the fifth, it'll be the, Jupiter, the next the, uh, brightest object in the sky apart from the moon and the moon. Ooh, very nice. And as always, Jupiter's moon will be excellent viewing as you watch them shuttle about from night to night. Uh, if you're watching carefully, there'll be some occultations of uh, moons by Jupiter, a couple of eclipses with the shadows, and of course, always nice is having uh, the moons moving across the face of Jupiter. Yep. Now, Mars is becoming brighter as it nears opposition. The opposition will be in December, and it's now rising around a, a bit before midnight. So... It remains best seen in the morning skies, but as uh, the month goes on, Mars will become uh, more than prominent in the late evening. Uh, it starts the month between Beta and Zeta Tauri. These are the tips of the horns of Taurus the bull. And then 
Very early on, it reverses its direction, and last month it is climbing away, or traveling away from Aldebaran and the Hyades towards the tips of the bull. Now it will reverse direction and start climbing up the tips of the up the horns of the bull, back towards the Hyades and Red Aldebaran. Cool. So quite nice, uh, as, as now it's becoming closer to opposition, it's beginning to be a worthwhile telescopic object and you should uh, be able to see Mars visibly swell telescopically. But even if you're not watching telescopically, the increasing brightening of Mars and its travelling towards should be quite interesting. And Mars is close to the waning Gibbons moon on the 11th. It might be terribly close. It'll be about three fingers away, but it will look, like it'll look very nice in uh, either by the unaided eye or binoculars. Now, Uranus is in opposition on the 9th, and it will be easily visible in binoculars, but the best guide will be when the Moon is being eclipsed. We'll talk about that shortly. Mercury returns to the evening sky this month, but it's very low in the horizon flow until quite late in the moment. Similarly, um, Venus returns to the evening sky this month. And again, like Mercury, it's very close to the, to the horizon in the twilight glow until very late in the month. Venus and Mercury will be quite close together. So if you, uh, around about the end of the month, if you've ever got a very uh, flat, decent horizon, like the desert or an ocean, uh, and if you look uh, round about a civil twilight, you should be able to see Mercury and Venus together just about finger width or two uh, above the, uh, the horizon. Difficult. You might need binoculars to see Mercury, but uh, it'll be worthwhile uh, seeing this because it's quite quite a, a interesting pairing. Nice. Uh, and it will be very nice indeed. So the big draw card of this month is the total lunar eclipse on Tuesday the 8th of November. Yep. Now, this isn't one of the better eclipses because uh, a lot of it occurs during twilight. Nonetheless, it's a very good time to prove that the Earth is in fact a sphere because you'll, uh, uh, you will see the uh, moon's shadow will still be a circle. And if the, if the Earth was flat uh, with a flat disk uh, at Twilight Eclipse should be, have, the, uh, have a rectangle rather than a disc. <laughs> now, the eastern states have the best view of the eclipse. If you remember, the Earth's atmosphere bends the light coming around it. The Earth's shadow has an outer part with an umbra and an inner part, the umbra. Now, the outer part is not very dark and the inner part is the darkest part. So technically, the eclipse starts when the uh, penumbra, the dimmest part, touches the moon. But because this, of course, is a, a twilight eclipse, it'll be almost impossible, if not uh, almost impossible, to see that. And for all those of us in the central and western states, uh, the moon rises uh, after the umbral eclipse starts. So I'm, when I say eclipse starts, I mean that the umbral part of the eclipse, where the darkest part of the shadow is falling on the on the uh, moon surface, the umbral eclipse you can see a 
a subtle shading of the moon, but the umbral eclipse, you can definitely see a dark white being taken out of the moon's surface. Now, for the eastern states, it starts after the moon rises. In fact, it starts well after civil twilight, but before nautical twilight. So it starts in, it starts in the twilight, but as the twilight's beginning to fade. Totality occurs uh, just after astronomical twilight, when the sky is at its darkest, and from there on till um, mid-eclipse and the end of totality, that all occurs when the sky is fully dark. And so the end of totality is around about 11 o'clock on the on, uh, Eastern Daylight Saving Time, and the eclipse itself ends around about midnight, local daylight saving time. Excellent. For us in the central states, it's not so crash hot. The eclipse starts after moonlight, well, before moonlight. So when the moon rises, low on the horizon, you'll see that the moon bubbling up above the horizon, and it will start off with a, a, a chip taken out of it. That, that by itself should look really, really uh, interesting. Um, to see the moon rise with uh, a chunk taken out of it will be, uh, will be quite interesting indeed. Then as the moon rises, the twilight gets dark, gets darker and darker. Totality occurs between civil twilight and nautical twilight, so the sky's going to be quite bright, but nonetheless you'll be able to see the moon becoming dimmer and dimmer and reddish. Probably going to be a very different experience to a uh, when the colours you see when the uh, moon is seen in a completely dark sky. But nonetheless, you should be able to, to uh, see see the passage of the shadow over the moon quite clearly, and the effect of totality will be quite yeah. Because it's twilight, you won't have very many stars, so you won't get that really all the stars coming out effect. But by the, by the time of mid-eclipse, when the moon's completely, completely covered in the shadow, it'll be in total darkness, so you'll be able to see uh, the surrounding stars quite nicely. And this is where Uranus comes in, because Uranus, as I said, is in opposition on the night the day after. But Uranus is less than one degree away from the eclipse moon, or just above eclipse moon and the fact that it's the brightest object closest to the moon. So if you've got a pair of binoculars, Uranus will be very obvious. But if you're in a dark sky site, uh, Uranus is now uh, bright enough to be seen with your naked eye, but under suburban skies you probably won't see if you'll need to be out in a dark sky site. But with binoculars, it'll be really obvious the closest bright uh, object to the eclipsed moon just above it or just to the side of it, depending where in Australia you are. Fantastic. In Western Australia, unfortunately, the eclipse starts quite early, and the moon doesn't rise until after totality has set in. But this also should be uh, really interesting. Even with moonrise, you should be able to see a ghostly uh, pinkish disc instead of the... Um, the orange disc uh, you can normally see when, as the moon comes up above the horizon. Total, uh, totality ends um, before nautical twilight. Again, the sky is getting darker, uh, but you should still be able to see uh, the dimmer moon and suddenly a rim of bright light around it 
becoming bigger and bigger, and the eclipse ends after astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark. So you'll be able to see the last stages of the eclipse as twilight deepens and the sky becomes fully dark. So that will be a very good start to the month. Excellent. And the last thing is the Leonid meteor shower. The Leonid meteor shower is famous because every so often, uh, every about every 63 years or so, it has a major outburst. Uh, we had our last major outburst uh, back in uh, 2000, so we're not due for another one for quite some time. Uh, currently, it has very moist rates, but this year the waning moon is very close to the gradient area where the meteors here come from. So it's very unlikely you'll be able to see uh, any number of meteors. But if you feel like getting up around about uh, 3 to 4 o'clock on the morning of the 18th, feel free to do so. The sky will be very interesting, but don't expect to see very many meteors. Very good. So we've got a lunar eclipse, a meteor shower, planets in the evening sky beginning to appear. Do you have a tangent for us for this month, Ian? I do indeed have a tangent for you, and it's a very interesting tangent. Remember back in July 2001, I talked about seal telescopes? Yep. So as a reminder, animals navigate using a whole range of techniques. So honeybees navigate using a combination of polarised light, magnetic sense, and pattern recognition. As I've said, birds are master navigators, and migratory birds can travel from home to breeding ground over thousands of kilometres, and they use a range of techniques also. They use the sun and magnetic fields. Uh, as I said back in July 2021, they actually uh, uh, sent the magnetic fields weirdly through a blue-like responsive protein in their eyes called cryptochromes, not the iron in their beaks as previously thought. Um, I still have to follow that up to get a better idea of how the cryptochromes are sensing magnetic fields. I'll talk about that in another tangent uh, sometime later. Okay. Some birds do use stars to navigate, and they fix on the pole star to navigate, and they even use rotation of other stars around the pole star to confirm its identity. So there's been an experiment where birds were raised in the planetarium with Betelgeuse's pole star, and when they, when they are placed on a normal sky, they still use Betelgeuse as a navigation point. Now, planetarium has been used in a number of different circumstances to be able to work out how various animals navigate. And when I talked about the SEAL telescopes back in 2001, I talked about the, the um, pool planetarium that was used by the researchers. They had a five-metre round pool that was covered in a dome with over 6,000 point light sources to simulate the northern sky. And they had two harbour seals that were trained to go after uh, a particular star via, via uh, laser light. Uh, and when they tried, did the planetarium uh, without the training, the seals could still uh, navigate to the stars, even though they weren't having the laser light pointing away. So that's all very well. But what about dumbbells? I mean, have you never wondered how dumbbells navigate? Uh, well, that's... Most people probably haven't. Yeah. 
So when you when you think about dung beetles, or when you hear dung beetles, you're probably thinking of dung. But dung beetles have to navigate too. There's a whole bunch of dung beetles that are nocturnal. Ones that are out and about during the day, well, they don't have to worry, but the dung beetles turn out to be able to navigate using the Milky Way. Wow. So if you're familiar with insects' compound eyes, you know that they can't really resolve very well. They sort of give you a, a blurry overview of what's going on. So the compound eyes of dung beetles can't resolve individual stars. The seals have really good vision underwater, but once they get in, into the above the water to navigate with the stars, the stars might be too blurry for them to focus on, but it turns out that they could pick out the brightest stars, even though they were blurry, and you could navigate. But uh, the dung beetles, that doesn't work in the same way. So uh, now dung beetles are quite interesting because they're probably the only animal we know of that uses the Milky Way for, for orientation. So what they're seeing, they're not seeing a, a series of dots which they can focus on. They're seeing a stripe across the sky. And uh, I, if you've been watching the, um, the Milky Way over the uh, coming months or half months, you'll notice that, uh, at least from our point of view, the, the Milky Way uh, is now a flat band across the horizon, but it also, as the time as time goes on, that band tilts. So the, they can use the orientation and location of that band in order to navigate. So what, what happens is that during the day, they see by the sun, and, uh, and like many insects, they can see the polarization patterns in daytime skies. Can also work at that at night. And again, dung beetles are also the only known creatures who use the polarization of moonlight, now, which is incredibly insanely speed out the daylight polarization. But even when the moon is visible, dung beetles walk straight and as accurately as night as during the day, even when the moon is around. So, what happens when, it, uh, when the dung beetles don't have the sun or the moon to guide them with their polarization? So this brings back the planetarium. So researchers from Sweden took some dung beetles to the planetarium at the University of Waterstrand in South Africa, and they projected the Milky Way onto the dome ceiling. The dung beetles saw it and navigated. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and, what, and unsurprisingly, this generated a huge amount of research interest because you can imagine one of the things that you want to do with robots is to have robots able, especially flying robots like our friend uh, Ingenuity on Mars, you'd like them to have good and simple ways to navigate. So if you could trans translate the insect navigation methods to a flying robot, like some friends of, friends of mine are doing in, uh, in the lab uh, on the next floor, you should be able to get flying robots which can navigate quite quite effectively, uh, which is fantastic for navigation of Mar on Mars, and uh, maybe also useful for uh, delivering your pizzas by um, flying robots. So they continued the research with different kind of planetarium that they built. Uh, so the first test was in a planetarium that was a standard planetarium. So then they built a planetarium just for dung beetles and using LED lights to mimic the Milky Way. 
and to mimic it as the way we will see it through their compound eyes. So amazingly, they found that the young people were able to distinguish between the north and south arms of the Milky Way. Now, I don't know if you remembered uh, what the Milky Way looked like during our galaxy season, but the two different arms of the Milky Way have different brightnesses. And so the beetles are able, even though they to, to, to the beetles, the Milky Way is sort of a bright band across a very blurry sky. They can distinguish between their brightness and they can distinguish the brightness at a contrast as, as low as 30%. So theoretically, you can see the galactic center in Sagittarius and the Great Rift in Cygnus by with the, with the young beetles' range of senses. Of course, there's always a downside. They started mimicking sky pollution, light pollution, and that really messes them up. I mean, we already know that uh, light pollution is messing up uh, the navigation of birds and also messes up the uh, navigation of dung beetles. So they may not be able to navigate at, at night uh, without, the, uh, without the moon. And because the Dung beetles are really important for getting rid of what's done and cleaning up messes and making sure the your local environment isn't entirely stinky mess of uh, animal poop. Uh, that's kind of important. And, and it's not just the the urban lights messing up the Milky Way, it also messes up the uh, polarization of the light. And what happens is that bright buildings cause the dung beetles to head towards those sources of light pollution and so taking the dung beetles from their safety zone to some of the most dangerous areas they could be so it messes up their navigation it messes up their ability to find places to bury their dung and so as well as this information gives us one more point where we can say that light pollution is bad not just for us um, star-addled amateur astronomers, but for animals, potentially some plants and insects which are important in recycling nutrients in our very soil. So next time you look up at the sky and you can see the Milky Way, understand that dung beetles are looking up and seeing the Milky Way too and helping them find their way uh, uh, to safe harbours. That's amazing, Ian, and there's lots of animals that are being upset and their behaviours changed by light pollution. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave, another fantastic November sky guide and a really interesting tangent from you. Thank you, Ian. No worries. Uh, thank you for having me on and for helping people navigate the sky. And our best wishes to all the dung beetles. Ah, all the dung beetles and all other organisms that are navigated by the stars. Let's hope that they have a better time of it in the near future. Yeah, there's a lot of work we have to do. Well, thanks, Ian. Good night, mate. Okay, thank you. Good night and keep on looking up. See you later. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored.
But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandel at SpaceAustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And in two weeks, we bring you a special ASCAP recap episode hosted by Rachel Rayner from the CSIRO Australia Telescope National Facility. Rachel introduces us to four researchers who work with the ASCAP array in remote Western Australia. And Australia's ASCAP radio telescope has had an amazing year, breaking records, receiving awards and finding new objects all while still in the pilot phase. You'll hear from scientists who are using ASCAP every day to further their studies and from those working to shape ASCAP into a truly remarkable national facility. You'll discover how An Earth-based telescope can assist astronomers in a way we didn't know was possible a decade ago. As a precursor instrument to the SKA project, what will be the largest telescope the world has ever seen, the lessons we've learnt from ASCAP are informing the next stages of radio astronomy. The speakers you'll hear from are Dr Karen Lee Waddell, Director of the Australian SKA Regional Centre, Dr Tessa Vernstrom, a Senior Research Fellow at ICRA and the University of Western Australia, Professor Tara Murphy, Chair of the ATNF Steering Committee, the Australian Telescope National Facility. Then you'll hear from Dr Vanessa Moss, Head of Escape Science Operations at the CSIRO. Tune in in two weeks, and till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.